So this week we are covering Revelation 8 and 9 uh, because it's all one big part of the story, right? It's all kind of one scene. So there's no need to break it up and have to dwell too much on all kinds of destruction and whatnot. Um, so we leave it. So we had a nice little break and we saw in chapter 7 that God's people are protected. They're sealed. You know, the Israelites are sealed. The church, the, the great multitude is also protected, whether they're the people who are, you know, it's the church, you know, everybody who has become a Christian, or whether it's the people who become Christians after, so the, the main part of the body of church is gone, raptured up, and so those are the people who become Christians during the tribulation. It doesn't really say, it just says the people who come out of the great tribulation, right? So you take it kind of either way. Either way, these are Christians. These are people who become Christians, right? So that is the main part of it. Whether you're a Christian now or whether you become a Christian in the tribulation, you are saved. And this is what we get to see. What are we saved from, right? So that's really the thing. Why do I need a Savior? Why do I need to be saved? Well, because as the title implies, there is destruction coming. Right? And so this isn't going to be all the way fun, but... There, the application is going to be the reverse or the, the, the opposite of destruction, which is restoration. Right? And that is the good news we take to other people, that we are restored and they can be restored as well. So how many times have you guys seen destruction in your life? Right? It's easy to destroy rather than to build. Right? Destruction is, is generally not a positive word. And if you've experienced or seen pictures of a hurricane, an earthquake, a tsunami, a tornado, any kind of natural disaster especially, right, you see what the natural elements can do. And we see, like, you know, we lived in Biloxi, Mississippi. We got there a few years after the Katrina, so we got there in 2009. So Katrina happened in 2005. There were still remnants of the destruction. I remember seeing the pictures afterwards. There were, if you've never been down there, they had these big huge casino boats that are like three, four, five-story buildings. And they're technically ships because they can't gamble on the land. One of them was actually ripped in half, and one half was sent about three miles down the road. And they had pictures of the two halves of the casino, you know, sitting there and everything else. And I remember going into a paint store, and they said they had a sign on the wall that said the Katrina 2005 water line was here. You know, it was basically the top of the store. So that's how much water they got from the ocean and everything else into that store. Now they're up and running, so, you know, we recover. But the atomic bombs that were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II, they were codenamed Little Boy and Fat Man, respectively. So that's a picture of Hiroshima shortly after the, the bomb was dropped. And you can see, you know, remnants of buildings, and you can see a few buildings that were standing. Um, but you see the widespread destruction, and they killed between ninety and thousand, ninety between ninety thousand and one hundred and sixty-six thousand people in Hiroshima, and between thirty-nine thousand and eighty thousand in Nagasaki. Right, so you you have quite a few people who were killed by the atomic bomb. And so this in the end, little boy, which is the next slide. This is the picture. This is the inside of little boy, which was the bomb that they used that they dropped on uh, Hiroshima. So this bullet-like projectile, so that little pointy part, the little thing looks like, a, like an arrowhead kind of thing in the back, towards the back of the bomb. 
it gets shot into the orange, the other orange part in the front of it. it looks like like half a pumpkin. And so those little things, because the little boy isn't huge, but it's not very, it's not small, but it's not huge either. Right? This this change this caused this change reaction. And so this one's a 15 megaton bomb. So not huge, but so about 15,006 of dynamite, I think is what it is, right? So that is what caused all the destruction. And we see, right? And so this is just boom. And so really it's, it's the size of about a large candle being shot into something the size of a pumpkin. And this is what happens. And so likewise, something so small as sin entered the world and it started this chain reaction down through the ages that leads us to today's passage because this is like the, this is the beginning of the end. And so we see the ramifications of this. And so as you're just like ripples in a pond, you, you throw a rock in, it's one little tiny ripple, but then it goes out. And so we are toward the end of the pond, so we have the bigger ripple effect. And so sin has set upon us this destruction because people's pride, and we're going to get to that in the last point, but this is really what it is. It's people's pride that, that causes this destruction. So we have to keep in mind also that the, one of the themes of the book of Revelation is that that which cannot be redeemed from sin must be destroyed. Things that are sinful and dirty cannot be admitted into the holiest place next to God. We can't be next to God who is holy. He is perfect. So it's a very binary thing, one or the other. So we're going to go ahead and read Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 through 5. And we'll cover the rest of it as we go, because if you look on your outline, the first point covers all of chapter 8, then we break up chapter 9 into two parts. So we'll move quickly through it, because most of it's pretty self-explanatory, so not a lot of need for explanation for this. But this is what John tells us in verse, chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And so we have this scene here, but here's the, the main idea of this is that God brings destruction on those who do not repent. Sounds not probably what you wanted to hear on Valentine's Day. Not very happy. Couldn't really figure out a way to make it happy. It just is what it is. Right? This is the unpleasant part in a sense of, of God's wrath is the unpleasant part is the other half of God's joy. But we have to deal with it. We have to be explaining it so people can understand what awaits them if they do not accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, right? This is, this, is, this, this is the part. And again, it's not to scare people. This is, just, this is what is written, so this is what reality is. So the first part is we're destroyed by fire. So the whole of chapter 8 kind of deals with fire, and you see this weaved in. And again, we see the, the first six seals in chapter 6. They're broken, and we have a break in chapter 7. So John sees the people who are saved who make it out. 
of all these things that happen. And then we move to chapter 8. And so Jesus opens the seventh seal. And then John says there was silence for about half an hour. And so this is really probably the calm before the storm. That we see that we wait. You open the seal and you're just waiting for something to happen. When we lived in Utah. You lived near the, we lived near the lake. So you could see the weather coming across the Great Salt Lake and everything, across the desert. And it's like, okay, it's going to rain today, eventually. But it seemed like it took forever for it to come. You can watch the storm clouds get darker and darker and move closer and closer, but they weren't moving super fast usually. So it's like, well, hurry up, just hurry up and rain. I just want it to rain so I can go on with my day because I want to go out and start something, like cutting the grass or whatever, and have to stop halfway through because the rain just shows up all of a sudden. And so it's kind of like, that's kind of how I see this, is, is you see the storm coming on the horizon, and you're looking at it, you're going, oh, it's getting darker, the clouds are here, we, we can look outside, and all of a sudden, boom, there it is, and you're just waiting. And so this silence is probably very eerie, and everybody's, you kind of get this picture of everybody just kind of standing around looking at each other, maybe, like, what's going to happen? Because John doesn't really know what's going on, everybody else may have known they, they, they have been maybe planning and practicing this whole thing. You know, maybe they ran drills for the angels. All right, you know, simulate Jesus breaking the seal. Okay, now what do you do? And then, you know, so they go through their jobs. Who knows? But John doesn't know what's going on, so he's just waiting and looking and watching. But John draws our attention to the angel before the altar. And so he has an incense burner, or, or sometimes your, 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 uh, your translation may say he had a censer. All right, so it's like a metal... A lot of times they're like a metal ball or like a big egg looking type thing. If you look at the Orthodox Church, you know, Patrick, you don't, right? They, they have those and that's what they swing. It's on chains and they swing it. They've incense in it and it's burning. And when they come into the church and do these things, they're, they're spreading the smells of the incense around the church. Because for the Israelites, for the Jews, that was part of the, how they, they had an incense altar. So that was what they used to pray with and things like that. And so it was to offer the prayers of all the saints who were under the altar. And so these saints were the saints of the tribulation period. So these are the people that we saw in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. So they're taking the prayers that they were giving and say, Okay, I'm gonna, you're going to pray. The, the incense and your prayers are going to go to God. And they were praying for the destruction of the people who were their tormentors. People who punished them, people who martyred them. Right? So here we see this, this kind of fruition of this happening. And their prayers, again, were for vengeance on and deliverance from their enemies. But then the angel picks the censer up. He fills it with fire. So he's reached over the fire from the altar, picks it up, puts it in the censer, and then he just throws it to the earth. And so you, partly we get a sense of heaven is somewhere here, earth is here. So he's throwing it from where he's at down to earth. And so we see these calamities from the trumpets, we have hail, hail and fire in verse 7. The second trumpet in verse 8, something like a great mountain was hurled into the sea, so most likely a meteor. And so this, but then it says the sea turned into blood in, the, in verse 8. Right, so there's something like a great mountain would blaze with fire, hurled, was hurled into the sea, so a third of the sea became blood. And so they think this may be in comparison with the first Egyptian plague from Exodus. So again, Exodus swings by through everything that we deal with practically. And so when the waters and the rivers were turned to blood there in, in Egypt, 
and the fish in, the, in these rivers died. A meteor falls and it kills sea creatures, it burns ships. Right, and so we, we, that's why we call it a falling star, right? Because we think it's something that's on fire, right? Because you see the tail. If you've seen them, it's the tail. And so then John tells us another, another star falls. And this perhaps would be another meteor trailing with a huge tail of fire burning like a torch as it streaks through the heavens, right? We see this going down, hurtling downward through the space. It falls into the waters and contaminates one-third of the rivers, and springs with radioactive gases and thus rendering them poisonous. And so this is chapter, this is verse 10, 10 and 11, where the star, the name of the star was Wormwood and the third of the waters became Wormwood. So many people, so many of the people died from the waters because they had been made bitter, right? So they turned the water bad. They had nothing clean to drink. So this is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 9, verses 13 and 15. It says, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. Right, so we see these Old Testament prophecies coming true in this, in this instance where things were told of how it's going to happen. Then we're just getting a little more specific here. And so this whole chapter deals with four trumpet blasts that call forth destruction and how we are told. And we're told how devastating it's going to be. Imagine having meteors just start falling and bombarding the earth and we know that's what we think that's what killed the dinosaurs we had a huge one come and uh, you know it created enough cloud to supposedly block out the sun so of course they need the sun to be warm they didn't have it they so they they died right if we go with the, that scientific aspect of it but even though this is how the world is going to end there is a way out or at least we know that there is eventually going to, we are going to come to our peaceful, final, eternal home, right? We know, as a, as a Christian, we know that we, even if we're living during this, we may have to endure these things, but we know where we're going. We know that this isn't the end for us. This isn't just the last thing we're going to have to experience. And so, the, that which cannot be redeemed will be destroyed. So how are we redeemed? Well, here's the application for this part, that we are restored by blood. Right? We are restored by the blood of Jesus. And so in the Old Testament times, right, the blood of the animals, they were different sacrifices to the temple, depending on what your sin was, what you had to do. You had a pigeon, you could use a ram, a bull, whatever, whatever you were doing, depending on what was going on, different ceremonies. The blood would temporarily restore the Jew to God. Right? That's what it was, and that's why they kept going, and that's why the book of Hebrews was written to say, look, we don't need to do that anymore. We don't need to keep going to the temple to do these things anymore because there's one person who came to do this one final sacrifice that restored the world. Right? That took place on Golgotha, on the hill, on the cross, on a Friday afternoon, what we call Good Friday. And so Jesus' blood does many things, but one thing it does is it offers us propitiation, right? It offers us propitiation to remove God's righteous wrath. So God has every right to be angry with us. He has every right to just dispel wrath on everybody. But he saved certain people to get away from that, to be free from that. And so that's what Jesus does. He, he paid for the elect. So Romans 3.25 says... Jesus is the one whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Because God is just, 
The sins of his people are no small obstacle. And so we see this. This is what the whole plan was. We know the pride caused the fall, but God already had Jesus, God the Son, coming down to pay for the price because only God can take on human flesh. So God himself, in the person of his own Son, takes on human flesh and blood and offers himself in the place of sinful people. Right? We cannot pay, even though we caused the problem, we cannot pay for that price because it's God's law. So God has to either say, yep, know what, you guys are all clean, no problem, I just cleared all your debt, and there's nothing been paid. Or he goes in and says, look, I've paid it for you. I, I cleared it with the bank, I made sure everything was good, and you're saved. You're bought and paid for his blood signifies a sacrificial giving of his life in the place of those deserving death. And we receive that gift by faith. And so we are made correct. We are, he propitiates his righteous wrath. So he wipes it clean. He upholds divine justice as well. Because again, he can't just say, I, I just get rid of it. Like He has to hold to his rule. And the rule is that something has to die to make you whole again. So either you do or Jesus did. And so this divine justice that also his blood also opens up the floodgates of mercy, right? So we know that we, we can be restored and we don't have to be destroyed and worry about that we're being destroyed because of the wrath. And so while we as the elect are off the hook, we know that we are free from God's wrath. John lets us know, though, that there are three more woes coming where he says, look, there's, this isn't the end of this part. I heard, verse 13, I looked and heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who live in the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. So we're not out of the woods yet. So this fourth beast, that's what they think, that the eagle flying was the fourth beast that we talked about that was in front of the throne. And he's giving us the, the, bad, the more bad news to come. So we looked... To chapter 9, and we're, we start seeing that we're going to be destroyed. People are going to be destroyed by armies. So this is verse 1 through 19. And so the fifth trumpet bellows. And we see John sees a star falling again from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So angels are called stars in the Old Testament in several places. Job 38, 7. In Revelation 20, verse 1, this same angel here in verse 9 is referred to as having the key of the bottomless pit. So therefore, he cannot be Satan. right? So for God would not trust Satan to bind himself. It's like, here, here Satan, take the, take the jail key and go lock yourself up for a little while till I come for you. He's going to be like, right, boss. Sure, no problem. I got that. Even though I just tried to overthrow everything already. But I'll listen to you now. I learned my lesson. Right, no. So this is probably a, reg, you know, a normal angel. We'll say he's not a fallen angel or a demon. Uh, because, th again, they wouldn't be able to be trusted to lock themselves up either. Right? So this star angel is one who is assigned to this specific task of opening and closing the pit on instructions from God. Right? So this is an angel, so he just has to fly down. Maybe he flew really fast like a peregrine falcon whoosh, down to where he has to go, unlock the door because God told him it's time. And so opening this pit, we have this army of locusts. And you can read the description. I'm not going to read it. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy, right? So they had on armor. They had tails that stung. They had faces. They were like horses. 
Yeah, they wore crowns. Uh, they had human faces. Right, so we see this very vivid description of this army. So what does it mean? 100% I don't know what, what it's representing, but what I do know is that they are coming for destruction. They are coming for torment. I've seen some people interpret this as this is the Apache. I've seen it so far as it, this is the Apache helicopters that, that people are going to use. No, I'm pretty sure it's not. Right, I can, I can kind of rule that one out. But whatever it is, this is so fantastical. But if it's literally true, this is extremely terrifying. This is a, this is a crazy description of what's what. But regardless, we see that they're coming for a purpose. They're coming to destroy and torment. And so people are going to want to, dis they're, they're going to want to die to escape this threat, these terrible monsters that are coming from wherever, from the bottomless pit of hell. People want to escape the threat, but they can't. They have to live through, the, through this terrible deal. It's part of the torment, this, this part of the punishment is that they have to live through this. You know, dying would be the easy way out. Because in verse 6 it says, In those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So they have to live through this. And that's the, probably the more terrifying thing is that I just was just like in end of chapter 6 where they just wanted to have the rocks crush them. Because I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to live through this. But they're not getting it. It's not an out for them. So then we're introduced to the general of the armies, so Abaddon in Hebrew or Apollyon in Greek. So in either language, it means the destroyer. So here we have the general coming to the forefront. And so we see who is commanding everybody. And then we see the four angels who are released to kill a third of mankind. And so he is in command of these legions of troops and and they destroy a third. They, they destroy a third of the population that's already earth. And we've already had at least a quarter of the population destroyed already. So as we go through Revelation, we keep seeing the numbers dwindling. And dwindling and dwindling. You're getting down to the, to the end. But here's the application of this part. That God's people are restored by one man. It takes many to destroy, but it takes one man to save. And so Jesus justifies and saves, right? So we also, through his death, through Jesus' death, we have justification. And that means to extend God's full acceptance. And so Romans 5, 9 says, we have now been justified by his blood. And so justified is courtroom language. It's the prosecution or defense. Each present their case, and the judge or jury makes a declaration. You're either righteous or condemned, guilty or innocent. And the defendant is either guilty as charged or he's declared to be in right standing with the law. Right? That's really what innocent means. It means you didn't do anything wrong. Or at least to the point they couldn't prove it anyway. But you are justified. And so the reason those who are united to Jesus by faith are justified is owing in part to his sacrificial and substitutionary death. Right? Jesus willingly shed his blood not for his own sins because he didn't have any. He didn't have a reason to be in the courtroom. Unless he just wanted to watch. But he went on to the stand. Right? He, he didn't go for his sins. He went for our sins. And so the spilling of his blood, his death, covers our sins, made it possible. He shared his righteousness with us. He gave us his righteousness. Right? It's imputed. Right? That's what the word means. He gave it to us. And he took our sin. He took it and threw it in the ocean. 
And so without his blood, our unrighteousness would remain unaddressed. And we could not stand with him at the final judgment and receive with him his father's declaration as righteous, right? We wouldn't be sealed or stamped to be one of his people. And so Paul tells Timothy in his, in his first letter to him, in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He tells him right up, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Right? Because remember, Paul was trying to persecute the Christians. He was trying to, he had papers to go kill any Christian he could find, or at least bring them back and try them. But he was like, well, hey, they, they wanted to wrestle with me, so I shot them. Right? Just kind of a, the, the, the rooster Cogburn, if you've seen um, True Grit, oh, I just shot him because it was easier than bringing him back, right? So that was, his, that was his job. He was allowed to do that. And so Paul was the same way. He's like, I'm the worst people because here I am trying to kill his people. But Jesus Christ demonstrated his extraordinary patience. He waited for Paul, then he waited for the road to Damascus to save him, to say, look, you're one of my people. So Charles Spurgeon titled a sermon that centered on those two verses that we just read. He called it a great gospel for great sinners. So you are never too far gone to be saved. You are never too far away from God for him to reach out and rescue you. So if people hear that, and maybe, we've, maybe you've said it in your lifetime before you got saved, or maybe you've even done something after, well, God can never forgive me for that. Well, he already has. Right, so we can tell people and give them the hope. When we see this destruction, it's very scary and terrible. But say, look, there's a hope, there's a way out, because you're never too far, and that's good news for the sinner. Because you're already bought and paid for. And we can tell them this, this amazing grace, right? That demonstrates the amazing grace in the song that we sing. The grace that saved a wretch like me. Because I wouldn't be allowed to be up here if I wasn't saved. Or I shouldn't be. Right, that's an important part, especially for somebody up here preaching the gospel messages. I, I should be saved, and I am. So don't let, don't let people, or yourself for that matter, think that you cannot be saved because you can. Because if it's really bothering, it means the Holy Spirit is probably working in you to get you to that point. Because if you notice, the bigger thing is that God is still directing all the traffic in these things. God is still directing all the events of this book because he is sovereign. He is in charge. He is the king. And so there's one last section, though, one last warning that John gives us for the, for the sixth trumpet for this chapter. And it's destruction by pride. And so if you guys look at Revelation chapter 9, it's the last two verses in the chapter, verses 20 and 21. And they're very important for this whole thing. The people who were left, so, right, so they killed a third of the earth, whoever's around, they did not repent. Right? The people who were left did not repent. They kept doing what they were doing after witnessing this, all these horrific events. Right? So they did not repent of the works of their hands or stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. 
And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immoralities, or their thefts. These people kept doing what they were doing because they liked worshiping demons. They liked worshiping whatever you wanted to call a god, an idol. The inanimate objects that can't do anything. They liked killing, they liked stealing, they liked sleeping with whomever they desired to sleep with. And so they did not care, they did not want, feel one iota of guilt, it seems like, even after witnessing all these things that happened. They did not understand or wish to know what is happening, it seems like, why it was happening, or perhaps more importantly, who was making it happen. There's people who just never get it. There's people who do not believe, they do not acknowledge God, they do not care. They just want to live their life. They think once they die, they're done. And so they let their pride get in the way, right? Their pride caused them to exchange their eternal joy for earthly happiness, right? They were so consumed with the now, they didn't care about the later. And they're living through some terrible nows in this part of the book. In this part of whatever's going on in the world, whenever this happens, but they just didn't care. I'm going to get all I can, and when I'm done, I'm done. But here's the application, is that we are restored by humility. Right? You are restored by humility, by being humble. Jesus humbled himself to the point of leaving heaven, dying on the cross, and then being resurrected by God, and God glorified him Exalting his name above all others. Right? Philippians 2.9. Likewise, we must not be destroyed by our pride either. So we talked about this yesterday in our men's Bible study. So uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus tells a crowd a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Or sometimes it may be the Pharisee and the publican. That's the, you know, the old, kind of the older word. Of the tax collector. So, do we have it up there? Do we have that, Mason? Or no? Okay, that we do. So, you guys go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 18. Verses 9 through 14. <clears throat> so the gist of it is, and we're going to read chapter, verse 11 here in a minute, but the gist of it is the Pharisee walks up and say, he prays, he says, I'm glad I'm not like them. Here it is right there. I'm glad I'm not like these people. I'm not greedy. These people are unadulterous. They're unrighteous. They're adulterers. And he, and he kind of looks over, you kind of see him go, or even like this tax collector. Because right? the tax collectors, are, they're, not, they're not popular people. They thought they were the enemies of the, of the Jews because they were working for the Romans to take people's money. And you know, with Zacchaeus and some other ones that we see, that we encounter, a lot of times that's how they made their money. They would come up and say, well, you owe $50 when you really owe and you owe $30. 
right? Or whatever it was. And so they would pocket the extra 20 bucks. And so you do it to every person. You can walk away with some pretty good money at the end of the day. And if you guys watch The Chosen, you see Matthew's house is pretty, pretty nice, it seems like, because he has money, it seems like. But the tax collector standing far off, he would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you this one. And Jesus says, I tell you this one. So the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee, if you take it now, that's the whole thing. But if you're looking at it, God is much, much more pleased with the fact that you've just admitted you're a sinner. Because you've humbled yourself and you had to admit you were wrong. The Pharisee's like, I'm not wrong and those people are way more wrong than me. Because he never really says he's not wrong. He just says, I'm better than them. Right? It's kind of the comparison of like, well, I haven't killed anybody yet, ever. So therefore, I must not be a sinner. No, that's not... Murder is not the key to being a sinner. Sinning is, is the key to being a sinner. Murder is just one type of sin. Right? It's kind of how we look at things and go, well, at least I didn't do that. But the Bible is full of Proverbs or verses about being humble. So here's a few. Proverbs 16, 19 tells us, It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Right? And so and in James 4, 6, he says, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And even as we go, we're going through Exodus, and stubbornness and pride is, is one of those things that go hand in hand. And we see, we saw this week on Thursday that the, the Pharaoh was prideful. He was resisting God. And so God had to knock him down a few pegs. Right? Because God is the king of the universe. Pharaoh was just kind of king of Egypt. That was it. Pharaoh thought he was the king of the universe as well, but his universe only extended to the borders of his country. And so we see these things, but God, he wants you to be humble because he knows who he is and he wants you to know who he is. So he is the one who saved you. He is the one who restores us to himself. And so we can be like the other people and just go through life and not be happy or just be being happy with whatever we have now, but we're going to be very um, unhappy and mistaken if we're dividing the spoils of the pride, the proud. Right? If you just think you have enough money and that's it, then you're, you're sorely mistaken. All right, so just like the bomb codenamed Little Boy, it wasn't very large, but the power of it inside was destructive. All right, and there's the actual, like a mock-up. Of, it's a scale, scale model, I guess, basically, next to the, I don't know sure if it's the Enola Gay, but it's, it's one of them, or the model of it or whatever. But it's the real, the real deal, essentially. <clears throat> so again, not that big. But sin is like that. It doesn't take a big sin to cause a lot of problems, right? It's a little lie, right? The sin of pride caused the world to fall, and the people who do not repent will face God's wrath and judgment. And so those of us who have repented, we are safe. We can take solace in the fact that we know that even though we, we may have to live through this, depending on 
how it actually goes down, we know that it's just a short time, it's temporary, that we will not have to endure these types of things for all eternity. Because these types of things are what awaits you in hell and probably things that are way worse. And we can be firm in our faith that Jesus is the one who saved us and his work on the cross did in fact save us. We don't have a hope that we hope it worked. Right? We have a, we have a sure assurance that it did work. And that's the difference. So when we use the word hope, it just doesn't mean I'm hoping to get a present. It means that I know it did. And that's where my hope is, my joy. So let's spread that good news, right? That's what we're here to do. The good news that the Savior has done his work and he paid the price for the sinners. So as we go out this week, think about how you can take what's going on all around us and lead people into the good news. Lead people into the conversation about Jesus and why it matters, right? So we're singing our last couple songs. We'll do the transition.